here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I want to share that I have an Audible original coming out today. It's called The Prin Viper. So the spelling of that is P-R-Y-N-N-E, Viper, V-I-P-E-R. And it's a major change for me in that it's dystopian fiction, something that I've never tackled before. And it's a short story, a form that I don't consider myself to be very good at. You may have noticed on this podcast that I am rather wordy. But I think it's important as writers for us to challenge ourselves and push ourselves out of our comfort zones wherever possible. And that's exactly what I did with this story. So if you have an Audible account or enjoy audiobooks, please give it a listen. We spend so much time critiquing your work. Now's your chance to critique mine. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. We decided to get all nostalgic and throw it back to the way we used to do it last year because we had feedback from a whole bunch of you saying that you really used to love it when Carly and Cece used to enter into discussion, even if they sometimes repeated the same thing or were too much in agreement. So just for today, we're doing that kind of format for the podcast. And we're going to ask Carly to kick us off with that first query letter. Dear Ms. Waters, Novel X is a 78,000 word upmarket women's fiction hashtag own voices novel with crossover commercial appeal. A perfect book club read, it's about how women like Ray Earle from My Mad Fat Diary must continue to cope when milestones like midlife sucker punch them in the gut. 
you will also definitely find this is the ultimate unlikely friendship. Not just the who, but the how. And heavy plot with a feel-good ending that is on your manuscript wish list. Successful photojournalist Soraya keeps telling herself that she's just fine. She's living the dream in New York City after all. She doesn't like to think about the dark days when she binged and purged until she almost lost her life. Her smart, handsome fiancé, JB, certainly doesn't need to know about that. When a work assignment brings Soraya into contact with her first love, Chango, for the first time in 20 years, the fragile confidence she's built over two decades is in danger of collapse. If JB finds out about her bulimia, he'll start asking questions, exposing the inadequacies she worked so hard to ignore. He will see her for the unlovable person she really is, and he'll leave, just like Chango did when he learned the truth. It all leaves her, well, wanting to puke. Soroya retreats to the one thing that has always brought her comfort, eating. Sitting at her kitchen table with a bag of takeout that she has no intention of keeping down, she's at a crossroads. If she allows herself to binge and purge just this once, she'll be right back where she began, or she can finally face the hurt that got her to this point and try to save her relationship and quite possibly her life. Novel X is honest fiction about eating disorders and self-image written by someone who lived it. I am the author of Bracket, a really awesome true crime slash memoir, and Bracket, which was acquired as a TV pilot by CBS Paramount in 2000 blank blank. I have published and been featured in numerous legal articles and sat on the editorial board of Bracket, a legal magazine. I segued my success with my memoir into prolific several years as a crime commentator on TV and radio and advertiser on television and film scripts. Having had enough of the real world, my writing is now focused on fiction. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you so much. Cece, why don't you give us your thoughts on that query letter? All right. So I'll start off by saying that I did not know what my mad fat diary was. And, you know, when referencing something, it's always hit or miss because if the agent does know what you're talking about and obviously likes the work, then they might instantly understand the feel of what you're pitching. But if the agent doesn't, then that might be tricky. I am mindful that this is, you know, addressed to Carly. So perhaps Carly has tweeted about my mad fat diary and and this writer knows that. So I did not know that I had to Google and I just found it confusing to have Ray Earl's name because I thought for a second that that was the character and I had to reread that. So yeah, just letting you know that if you were querying me, I would be confused. Also, I wondered if you meant plot heavy as opposed to heavy plot, but I also wasn't sure. I really like that you gave me title, word count, genre, and comps. My general feel based on the plot paragraphs is that this feels like a short story, not a novel. I'm not saying that the actual work doesn't have enough plot points to merit a full length book, but I don't see it in the query letter. It feels like a slice of life situation where this woman has constructed this life for herself and then a meeting with someone from her past sends her to be in a situation where she's sitting at her kitchen and she might go back to practicing the eating disorder that she used to have. And I know the author has experience with this, so obviously they know their stuff. I just don't see enough plot here for a full novel, and I don't know if that's intentional or not. I also wondered if the writer has read Thin Girls by Diana Clark. It's one of my favorite novels of all time, and it might be a comp. I don't know. I don't know if it's as voicey and as intense and as... Let's face it, Thin Girls is quite triggering, but it's beautifully written, and the author is, quite frankly, a genius. So I enjoy this query letter, but if I had gotten it, I probably would have been in doubt as to whether there's enough here to merit a novel. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Carly, what was your take on it? Okay, here's my take. So I'm just going to start at the top and kind of work through my notes. So the first thing that I had a note on was the use of the word crossover. I think some people still kind of think of this as a buzzword. If I throw the word crossover in there, it can mean like anything I want it to mean, or, you know, it is a very hopeful word. And so the instance here of it being used as upmarket women's fiction, hashtag own voices, novel with crossover commercial appeal. So crossing over between commercial and upmarket women's fiction, I mean, it's it's not that it's kind of all the same thing because it's not, but you're kind of, you're using a lot of buzzy words where it mutes down what it actually means when you say upmarket. Market, women's fiction, crossover, and commercial. Do you know what I mean? So I think I would just try to pinpoint a little bit more firmly where you imagine this to be. And there's no wrong answer here, right? It's not wrong. It's just, I think you're trying to hedge your bets here. And I would rather that be a little bit more specific. So the next section is the perfect book club read section. I think that could maybe go at the bottom, like above the author bio, but just tucked in at the bottom. Because again, I didn't know this comp either. So that didn't really make a huge connection on me. And whenever we're kind of explaining what the book is, not really in a hook manner, but using thematic language, I would just rather put that at the bottom because I want to know what the actual book is up at the front. So that's really important to me. One of the other notes I had was that this pitch is leaving me with a lot of questions. And I'm not sure they're the right questions. You know, I questions like what was the work assignment and things like that. So I'm just, again, not not sure if we're actually focusing on the right 
things in this pitch and maybe the author isn't clear on what to be pushing forward if this is a plot heavy book because yeah I, I just still have some questions and it's leaving me a little bit more confused than with clarity the other thing is that this is a very interior plot right so we're talking about women's fiction which tends to be a little bit more interior we're talking about bodily functions and eating disorders and and things like that and it's very interior there's a lot of secrecy and that just makes the stakes inherently low not for this character obviously they're very dramatic and high for this character but for the other characters that interact with her so i'm wondering how is this eating disorder going to affect her work or her friendships or her relationship with her parents or you know what i mean i just think it has to be larger than herself because it feels so interior and it makes it feel quiet right and that's a word that isn't necessarily a bad word it's just a word that you need to know if your book is coming off a bit quiet i think otherwise i thought the author bio paragraph was great you know the sign off was great so i think there's a lot of really interesting things here it's just kind of pulling out what it is makes this pitch a pitch and i just think we might be burying some things wonderful carly would you give us an overview of what's in those opening okay we open with a prologue and the heading at the top is rolling stone magazine comma manhattan comma new york 2019 so we are immediately dropped into a scene where our main character is speaking it's first person so we're getting this kind of interior description of other people so we start off learning about the sister-in-law we learn about the fiance you know we learn about the job that she's doing she is shooting photography for a magazine article that features her sister-in-law and we're meeting all of the people that are involved with that we go back into the past because we are also introduced to her former love character that was mentioned in the query Chango, and that is the end of our pages. Okay, Cece, would you like to give us your take on those opening Let's pages? Do this. So I will just start with the big picture note, which is I think you should cut the prologue. I promise this is not because we don't typically like prologues. I have a very specific reason. So the prologue is focused on the protagonist telling us about the people around her in a way that has a lot of backstory. She starts with her sister-in-law, Sari, who's brilliant and kind and funny, and then talks about her niece and nephew, and then talks about, obviously, the inciting incident is that Chan shows up, and that she wasn't paying attention to what was happening when Chan showed up, and we, we know from the query letter that's a big deal. But then we get just more stuff on, like, who Chan is, and what their breakup was like, and what exactly happened, and it's a lot of catching up. I call this a recap beginning. You know how when we're watching a TV show, and you have that previously on, whatever, it's, it's it's sort of like this, except this is a standalone novel, right? So we don't need the previously on. We don't need that. I would just cut the prologue entirely, especially because chapter one has the best first line. Chapter one starts with, when I was six, I tried to kill a boy. First of all, you give me that. I continue reading, right? Like, why would a six-year-old try to kill this boy? My messed up brain immediately says, what did he do to deserve that? And then, I don't know, I just feel like the prologue isn't doing its job I think it's too much telling. So I would just jump to chapter one. That would be my big picture note to the writer. And then I would also ask her this. When you're trying to bring in a character's admiration for someone else, which she's trying to do right in the very beginning with, with Sari, with the sister-in-law. As a minor note, try to let your writing do the heavy lifting and not the punctuation. You have things like Sari, period, is, period, awesome, period, which... I mean, first of all, they're a little generic, like you have brilliant and kind and funny. They're, they're great adjectives, but they're generic. And also, you, you're letting the punctuation do the heavy lifting right in the second paragraph. So I, I wouldn't recommend that as a minor note. But yeah, I want to know why she tried to kill that boy and what happened. So I'm curious. Carly, what was your take on it? I feel like we are only learning about other people. So we have this main character and the prologue starts with her talking about her sister-in-law and then so-and-so and then, you know, her ex-lover. And even then we get into this chapter one, it's more kind of about the boy, but also a little bit about her, but it's also her as a child. None of this is her in the present. And so I think that leads to this whole kind of interiority problem where it's just coming off like who is this character if the book is going to be about her then who is she and I'm just really unclear on who she is if I hadn't read the query letter and I had only read these pages I would have no idea where this book is going I would have no idea you know what we're setting ourselves up for and so I think just a little bit more clarity being in scene being in the present it was really where the beginning of this book belongs you know just to do the do the book right right do the book justice and I, I think we really need to remain in the present much more than we do and we need to learn more about our main character than we do awesome Carly thank you right Cece let's go to your query letter will you read that for us 
Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, thank you for the in-depth craft and publishing knowledge you share on the podcast. I have used many of your tips to revise my query letter and look forward to your insight on my submission, where Britt Bennett's The Vanishing Half meets Nancy Johnson's The Kindest Lie. Redacted is a dual POV upmarket historical fiction of 92,000 words inspired by my 86-year-old grandmother who, despite Parkinson's tremors, still spends her days leaning over a sewing machine. In 1951, Ava Lynn, a gifted young seamstress who wears her feelings like thick perfume, becomes pregnant from a romance with the preacher's son. A short time later, she is unwed, living up north in her estranged aunt's spare room, sewing baby clothes instead of beautiful dresses. When the childless aunt makes an offer, Ava relinquishes her baby and promises to never reveal the truth about being the birth mother. But the arrangement quickly sours, and Ava seeks solace in a hasty marriage to a charming young man who comes with a hot temper and a bottomless flask of gin. When younger sister Jewel learns of Ava's troubles, she moves up north to help Ava cope with her tumultuous life and to recapture their dream of owning a custom dress shop. But Jewel soon finds herself living a life she never wanted with the shadow of Ava's struggles threatening to tear apart Jewel's own marriage. Twenty years later, the daughter Ava secretly gave away is engaged to be married and asks cousin Ava to make her wedding dress. Ava agrees and enlists Jewel's help. But when lies start to unravel, the sisters must choose. Let the raw edges of the past remain loose or stitch them closed while they still have time and each other. I am a writer and education professional living in Texas where my family roots run deep. Born and raised in Michigan, my writing contains a mix of Midwestern and Southern influences centered on the African-American experience. I was a finalist in the 2020 Writers League of Texas Manuscript Contest and a participant in the AWP, Association of Writers and Writing Programs, Writer to Writer Mentorship Program. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Redacted. Great. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, what was your take on it? Okay, so I love talking about comps. I really love this comp. A few reasons. Britt Bennett is coming to our retreat, our podcast retreat, our first one. So obviously we're huge Britt Bennett fans. So it's nice to see her name on the podcast because she will be at the retreat with us. So we can fangirl with her in person, virtually in person. Okay. So The Vanishing Half is actually, I think, a really, really great comp for this. So often we say if something's too popular, then you know it's not a good comp. But I really feel like this works here. So I would say keep it. It's great. It's popular, but it really does work for this project. So I think that's great. The next note I had is I'm curious what Cece thinks about this. So it says title redacted is dual POV, upmarket slash historical. And so what I always think is that the genre classification of historical kind of trumps every other genre classification. So you really only have to say historical fiction. I mean, there is such thing as more commercial historical or more literary historical, but I really don't think we need that extra definition. So CC, you can throw your two cents in there as well. But that was kind of my thinking as you just call it historical fiction. And then the inspired by my 86 year old grandmother, I would actually move that part to the author bio or just tuck that down. I think it's really beautiful kind of inspirational material, obviously, but I just don't think we need it there. So I would actually move it down at the end of the plot paragraph or just weave it into the author bio because I think that would be nice there. I'd really like to get right into the plot paragraphs. And I think those were great. I had absolutely no notes in that section. Obviously, with historical, there's like a teeny bit of world building you have to do. But otherwise, I think it was really beautiful. I mean, complicated and tragic and, and so many things, but I think it was really well done. And I don't actually have any notes. So that's it for me. Amazing, Carly. Thank you. Cece, what was your take? It's an interesting question. I definitely don't think we need the the upmarket. As someone whose taste veers towards literary and upmarket more so than commercial fiction, like I do appreciate commercial fiction very much, but I read mostly upmarket and literary. I always think that when people send this to me, it's because they're saying, hey, that stuff you like, this is how the telling works. But yeah, it's not getting in the way. So, you know, if for whatever reason it's important to you, you can keep it. I love the note about moving the inspiration to the author paragraph. I think that makes total sense because, and I will say this, this is a really strong query letter. When I first read it, I read the query letter without reading the pages. I first read it, I said, oh, this seems interesting. I would continue reading when it's time for me to do that. So it's doing its job, but I had an entirely different reaction when I read the pages, which I will get to in a minute. 
In terms of the plot paragraphs, I didn't know what arrangement she meant because the arrangement can't just be giving up the baby because she did that. She did relinquish her claim to the child or, or however you're supposed to phrase it. So what was the arrangement? Was she going to live with her aunt as a governess? Was she going to, I don't know, like what, I, I was curious. I also don't need to know. I just, you know, it did trip me up. I don't mind reading the book and finding out. And then I'm also wondering, does this story span 20 years? Which is fine in historical, it happens. But I also kind of wanted to know that, you know, like what time period it spanned. And I loved the author paragraph. This is a strong query letter. Definitely strong. Awesome, Cece. So could you give us an overview on those opening Let's pages? It starts in 1971, Flint, Michigan. So we have a timestamp and a place stamp. So that's great. And our protagonist, Ava, is trying to, she's trying to sew lace and she's trying to essentially put the needle through the thread. And she has trouble doing it and her sister comes in, they have a short conversation. And through her interiority, we learn that her sister thinks she's stubborn. She has children in the house, children in need of something she can't give them. And then she says, all I got left to give is love and piles of material. And I thought that was such a beautiful line. And then we have chapter one, which takes place in May 1951 in Jasper County, Texas, where again, Ava is with Jewel, same thing, but now they're kids and their Aunt B is, and I can't believe I read this and I wasn't triggered, Aunt B is walking by them and she's going to kill chickens or a chicken, they think, you know, for dinner. And then it turns out that her aunt actually killed three chickens, which is a lot, which typically signifies a really, really important meal. And the protagonist tells us that she looked down embarrassed and shrugged her shoulders. And that's the only indication we have of her emotion. So we do know that it has something to do with her because Jewel does say that three chickens is because of Ava. And, and yeah, that's what happens. Right, Cece. So I know that you tweeted about the submission saying how much you loved it and you thought you were going to be having a Shark Tank moment with Carly. Will you then give us your take on those opening pages before Carly tells us what she thinks? I am going to try to convey my enthusiasm without, I don't know, jumping up and down here as we record this. I loved this. Like, I am in love with these pages. I emailed the author right away. She has not gotten back to me yet. I just need this full manuscript. I need to read this. If I, if she had emailed me last night, I would have read it. I would have stayed up all night to read it because it is brilliant. The writing is brilliant. Even the emotion, right? It's, it's so powerful and so subtle and it's so hard to, to do both. And she does both. So do I have notes? Yes, because I always have notes, but it's, it's embarrassing how much I love this. I need this author to please send me a full manuscript. Carly, you try to take this, bring your lightsaber because... <laughs> It's going to be a fight till the death. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. My heart was swelling and shrinking all at once. And I don't know how that's possible, but that's what the author did. So, okay. So in terms of notes, at the end of the prologue, I guess, that's what it is. That takes place in Flint, Michigan. It ends with, it, I need to finish what I started. Anyway, we can add another line here as a clue slash foreshadowing. Like, for example, she has unfinished business and we know she does, right? Like she could say things like, I can't let things undone like I did before or, or something to hint to that unfinished business, which makes sense given all her psychological makeup in, in these pages. And then I also wanted another line of emotion in the paragraph that starts with Aunt B went in the house because she did tell us that she was embarrassed that Aunt B had killed three chickens all because of her. But I want something about, I don't know, Jewel's reaction. Like, is she upset that her sister is a little jealous, I guess? Or is she guilty? Or is she, I don't know. I just wanted more more layers of emotion there. So, but honestly, this this is just, this is perfection. I, I want to read more. I need the author to get back to me. I keep refreshing my email. So listeners, you know when you send a full to an agent and you keep refreshing your email to see if the agent is getting back to you. The reverse also happens, okay? I've been sitting here, staring at my inbox, refreshing my inbox, and the author has not sent me the full yet. So please, 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 by the time this airs, I hope I will have read it because I'm excited. Amazing, Cece. Before I hand over to Carly, as the creative writing instructor, I just have one suggestion here in terms of an edit. Look at redundancy. So shrugged her shoulders... There is no other thing that you can shrug besides your shoulders. It's the same as blinking. When people say blinked her eyes or nodded her head, you can't shrug your elbow or your foot and you can't blink your kneecap. 
right? So when you're going through your manuscript and you're doing those revisions and polishing on line level editing, etc., check for all of that. However, having said that, Sally Rooney's last novel probably had 140 nodding her heads. A friend and I counted and we lost track and there were about 10 shrugging her shoulders. Someone took your course, Bianca, the writing on a line level course. And apparently you said in the course, you cannot shrug your butt. So now whenever I read shrugged her shoulders, all I can think of is someone tweeting, you can't. And I imagine it with you saying it with your accent, like you cannot shrug your butt. <laughs> okay, so as Cece said, this reads like a finished book, which is a beautiful thing to read. You know, like there's so many times that we get manuscripts in varying levels of skill or craft or stages of the actual manuscript itself. I mean, this really was a finished manuscript. This is a finished book, right? Like this is somebody who if this went to press tomorrow, they'd be happy with it because they worked their tail off to actually make sure this is the best draft that it could possibly be. So kudos to them for, you know, putting this together, having great beta readers and, and partners to really make this shine. I thought they did a really really, really excellent job. The only critique that I have is, again, because I read the query, I have an idea of what's happening, but it's not clear at all the relationship between Ava and Jewel. So if you weren't to read, you know, any cover copy or query, anything like that, Jewel could be her daughter. Jewel could be, like, obviously, like they live together, but I'm really not clear on what their actual relationship is. And the word sister isn't used actually until page six, like the end of our document. So I think I would just love it to be a little bit more clear about exactly how they're related to each other because I definitely thought daughter at first. I didn't actually think sister, even though I had actually read the query letter, right? So it's just where we are in that moment and, and how the words flow and, and how the scene is set up. So I would just try to make that a little bit more clear and, and it's beautiful, beautiful language. If you know, I'm not saying you have to kind of spell it out on line one, but find a way to weave that in and, and make it really beautiful. So Cece, I'm not going to duel you for it. The only type of competition that uh, that I would maybe do is like a, a shot for shot at a bar when maybe we can see each other sometime. Maybe that'll be our our competition. But otherwise, I, I feel like it's addressed to you. You're passionate about it. You emailed the author. And you know, I'm happy to give a second read and support of this. But CC wins this round. Yay! I'm so happy. Okay, now all I have to do is convince the author to send this to me and to, to yeah, and to talk to me about it. I'm, I'm so excited. We're putting out all the positive vibes into the universe for you, Cece. Right, Carly, will you read the last query letter for us, please? Dear Carly Waters, 25-year-old college student Sylvie Maxwell used to love switching places with her twin sister as a kid, but now she's grown and ready to be herself. That is, until the concert of the year sells out. Sylvie is desperate for tickets and will do anything to get them, even if it means bargaining tickets from the promoter, her twin sister, Ray. In exchange, Ray demands a favor. Sylvie must take her place on a blind date. The plan goes awry when Sylvie begins to fall for the date herself. After a tragic accident, MLB player Dakota Porter gave up a shot at fame to become an orthopedic surgeon. Or at least that's what he lets everyone believe. With the guilt of a secret hanging over his head, he pushes away all the thoughts of finding love. Unfortunately for him, his father still likes to play matchmaker. After Dakota meets Ray, the blind date his father set him up on, he realizes his dad might be right about the whole love thing. Though, when they begin dating seriously, Dakota can't understand why the spark from their first date has fizzled out. As attraction services between Sylvie and Dakota at the twins' birthday party, they discover holding on to secrets may not only ruin their relationships with their family, but also any chance they have of a happily ever after. I enjoy listening to the podcast and have found your critiques to be quite informative. According to your agency's website, you represent contemporary romance, and I believe my story would be a good addition to your list. You Are 99 is a dual POV adult contemporary romance. It is completed 80,000 words and will appeal to fans of Something Borrowed by Emily Giffen, Regretting You by Colleen Hoover, and The Parent Trap. I'm a military spouse and mom of two currently living in Texas. When I'm not writing, I'm playing outside with my two kids and husband. Thank you for your consideration, Toby Carter. Awesome. Carly, thanks for that. Cece, what was your take on that query letter? It's a really well-written query letter. The first thing I thought to myself when I read it was twins. I love stories that have to do with twins. I find it to be fascinating because I love relationships, right? And the twin relationship is one that I know nothing about, but I think is, is absolutely fascinating. So I love the hook here. The fact that she changes places with her sister and then falls in love with the guy, except he thinks that it's her sister. So it, I love that. I think it's a great, great hook. Made me super curious. I'm a huge Emily Giffen fan. Baby Proof is my favorite. But yeah, 
yeah, I, I think the hook here is great. The one thing I did want, and I don't know if this is realistic in a query letter, but I want to make it clear that I would have just scrolled down and, and read the pages if I, if I had gotten this letter, because it's very good, is I guess with the plot paragraphs, it feels like it's all hanging on the inciting incident and then their, and then their chemistry. I would have wanted to see a pressure cooker situation. I would have wanted to see a situation where, I don't know, like maybe they had to work together and then they spent time together as colleagues or something, or I don't, I don't know what that would be because I haven't obviously brainstormed the plot points, but I just wanted escalating tension. Then the number two reason why I pass on fiction, number one reason is the writing isn't there, is the story plateaus, right? Like you, you have this great premise, but then nothing happens afterwards to escalate the tension. And I'm worried that based on this query letter, this might happen here. Obviously, it's possible that it won't, but remember that the agent wants to see that plot escalation. The agent has tons of query letters to get through and tons of stuff to read. And the reality of the competitiveness of this industry is that it's on you, the writer, to to show that, to show how the plot keeps escalating until it reaches a climax. And I don't see that here. I'm curious to see if Carly agrees or not, because it is addressed to her and she does have way more experience than I do with, with everything, especially commercial fiction. I definitely agree. I feel like there's a lot of vagueness, which a lot of times being vague is intentional by the author because they're trying to not give, you know, not give things away or the twist or what ends up happening in terms of being the roadblocks of this relationship. But we really do need a will they or won't they, right? Obviously, if it's a romance novel, they probably will end up together or end up happy, right? Like that's the comfort that you're looking for when you go to a contemporary romance. So that's kind of expected, but we still need that up and down or else, you know, why, why are we reading this, right? So I definitely agree. I think we just need to be a little bit more clear about when does the switch happen and then when do they switch back and, you know, and what's at stake for everybody through these switches, not just romance, but also, you know, other things. And romance, the difference between romance and women's fiction in this case is that the actual romantic plot is the first plot, whereas with women's fiction, the romance is usually the second plot. So really, this should be romance plot forward, but there has to be other things happening, right? With a male character here, there's a, I'm really confused about exactly what happened because it says after a tragic accident. Accident, this baseball player gave up a shot at fame to become an orthopedic surgeon. And so when did the accident happen? Like after he was famous or not? Or he had an opportunity to exploit his fame after he was in this tragic accident? And is he a surgeon or not a surgeon? Like, I don't know what happened. So and again, the accident, I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot here that's being hidden with this accident. Like, is he in a wheelchair? Is he impaired? Or some, like, what exactly happened to him? And why is he not convinced he'll find love because of this accident? Like, I'm just not clear on whether this has a disability subplot or something else that can give it another layer of emotionality that I'm not really clear on. So that is something that I'd love to know a lot more about. I think a huge comp here, and I just read it, so it's fresh on my mind, and it actually just came out. So this person probably could have pitched this to us before this book came out. But The Holiday Swap by Maggie Knox has a twin switching places romance plot. So I just think that would be such a great comp for this, right? It's like, oh, it's the holiday swap, except it's not during the holidays or something, right? That's just such a great comp. And it was a book of the month club pick. So, you know, the book's doing really well. So obviously there's a, a hunger for the parent trap type of plot line. So I think there's a great opportunity there to have that comp and make that work. So overall, I think too vague for me. And I would like it if we had our title, our word count and everything at the top. I really prefer all of that at the top. And I know every agent feels differently about this, but for me, it just sets the entire context for what's to come and, and helps me understand a little bit better. So I would prefer all of that information at the top. Awesome. Carly, thank you. So could you give us an overview on those opening pages? The twins, they are at home at their parents' house. We find out that the dad of the twins is going through some treatment and needs to be you know, taken back and forth to medical treatments. And we also find out that our twin, Sylvie, had gone through through some medical challenges as a child. So she's trying to be there for her dad when he's going through these challenges, knowing that her dad was there for her when she was going through that as well. Then we find out that the sister comes into the room. She's trying to get these tickets that she was really hoping for. The sister has the tickets. And then we find out right away about the date. And we don't know exactly who the date is with, but we do know that there's a date on the table. So we're really getting right to it. We learn a lot about backstory in terms of the, you know, what's going on with the characters and and it's a very strong opening. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? Okay, this is a situation where Carly and I disagree. I don't love the starting point. It feels like there's so much telling. I kept highlighting ways in which she was explaining things to us, you know, explaining everything from like, she starts with my twin sister and I were obsessed with her in the movie Parent Trap. And I don't, like, I get that. I feel like everyone was obsessed with that movie and the twins probably even more so. It's not that the explanations didn't make sense because they did. And it's not that they weren't well written because they were, but I just didn't want the explanation. I wanted a scene and I don't know that this is the scene because I don't know. So, so in terms of, of realism, it's something that I, that, that usually trips me up when I read stories. A, why is this dad trying to set up his daughter so much? Like, so odd. Like, I wanted to know more, not in an explaining sort of way, but in a context sort of way. And even things like, you don't even know when he wants to take you out. And then Ray asks when, and then the dad says Wednesday evening. Like, what kind of a person sets up a blind date with a fixed date? Usually it's like, when are you free? You know, and then you discuss dates or something. So I don't know. I often see this in, in first pages. The author needs something to happen. And then they write it in that way, right? Which, which probably sounds like I'm saying something bonkers because that's exactly what writing is. You need something to happen. And so you write it. But I can see the fingerprints and I'm not supposed to see the fingerprints. It's supposed to feel organic. And there is no surprise, right? When Ray looks at her, at the protagonist, the protagonist right away knows, oh, I know what that looks like. She's, she, she'll want me to swap places with her. So there's, there's no tension. It happens without conflict, without any significant surprise. I think it's important to start, if it's important to start with the family scene, which I'm not convinced, but if it is, then I don't know. It needs, there needs to be some tension in that scene. Fear, desire conveyed through surprise. I, I finally cracked what it is that makes me want to keep on reading. And if it doesn't have to be a family scene, then I don't know, the date, maybe? I, I kept thinking about Dial A for aunties because in the opening scene, we do find out that the mom sort of set her up on a date. It's more complicated than that, but let's just leave it at that. And then we have the date. So I would just, you know, maybe study that and see how she did it because that's an opening scene that immediately captivated me and everyone else since it's such a brilliant novel. Yeah, that's, it's very polished. It's very well written. The writer has clearly put a lot of work into this. I just think it needs more attention. One of the reasons that I like these opening pages is that I like that there is an emotional depth with the health element. And we've talked about this before with the, what is the tension about health, right? Like this dad, is he dying? Is he not dying? Or we also know that the doctor calls the sister and the sister doesn't pick up. So I think I am speculating that there's a lot more depth and fear and all of those underlying emotions baked into this situation, even though I agree with you, the tension's not there, but I feel like the deep-seated emotionality is, and that's how I get invested into characters, is knowing there's a reason that they feel this way. You know, if your dad is sick, I mean, you're going to want to take care of, you know, especially if you have a great relationship with your dad and they took care of you, you're going to want to take care of your dad too. So I just found that beautiful kind of family emotionality really interesting. The only thing I will say, though, is that having a family moment with everybody in the house feels young, because it feels like, you know, and we know that these are supposed to be college age characters, but it makes it feel even younger. It kind of makes them feel like high schoolers, because when's the last time you live with your parents, right? So, and obviously, we do know that the one sister lives alone, but you know, she has her own apartment, but she seems to come over a lot. And so I don't know, I just I felt young to me. So I think one of the things I would suggest would be to elevate to make sure it's very clear that they're in their mid 20s. And not that you know, being in the mid 20s is young or old, like it's an age, but I think we need to really make them not feel like teenagers living in their parents' house and having that mom and dad telling you what to do. Oh, I'm setting you up on a date. You know, that feels very parents kind of bossing you around. So I would try to figure out a way to to elevate to that to make them really feel like they're they're in their mid-20s. That would be something that I would want to focus on, as well as the health element. And as Cece said, probably some less telling would be key. Another thing that I was not sure about was there's a reference here to Bill Nye. And I didn't really understand that because Bill Nye was around when I was a child and I am in my 30s. So I just wasn't sure on what Maybe there's been like a resurgence of popularity to Bill Nye that I'm not clear about. Maybe he's TikTok famous now. I don't know. But I didn't really understand that reference. I think there was a good attempt to weave backstory and present all together. But yeah, tension and less telling. But I, I think it's really strong. I just wanted to add, you know, if I'm the writer and I'm listening to this, I go, wait, but I mentioned that they were in college because the writer did. It's in the first paragraph. And there's also another reference to business school. But I a thousand percent agree with Carly on this. It felt young. And I only realized that I agreed after she explained explained it because I was like, there's something about the feeling, right? Like first you feel, then you think, and it's not enough to write 
I am in college, which is, that's the line. I'm in college. It's not enough. The feel, the atmosphere needs to match the facts because you are creating a world. You're doing so much more than just painting a picture. You're inhabiting this world with people and it needs to feel real. It needs to feel compatible with what you're explaining is happening here. And the explanation is there, but the atmosphere isn't. So I a thousand percent agree with that. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Thank you, Kali. It's been wonderful having this nostalgic throwback episode. From next week, we'll go back to the new format, but every so often we'll throw these in for those of you who do enjoy the back and forth. Before we go to today's guest, this is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up the last weekend of January, and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services, and retreats tab, and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that, Again, look at the website, biancamarie.com, and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual, and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the author of The Girl in White Gloves, The Kentucky Debutante, and under the name of Kerry Majors, this is not a writing manual, notes for the young writer in the real world. 
She holds an MFA from Columbia University and was a writing professor for many years. She now writes full-time and lives with her daughter and dog in a leafy suburb west of Boston, Massachusetts. It's my pleasure to welcome Kerry Mayer. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So today we're chatting with Kerry about her latest book, The Paris Bookseller. And just to give you a bit of a one-liner to whet your appetite, it's the dramatic story of how a humble bookseller fought against incredible odds to bring one of the most important books of the 20th century to the world. So Kerry, we like to pick our author's brains on the inspiration for their books. And I know you like to write about real people that you then fictionalize. So can you tell us a bit more about that and specifically the inspiration for this particular book? Right. Well, so I do like to write about real women, women who maybe aren't as well known in history as we, as they might be. And Sylvia really fits that bill. Although, you know, what's interesting about Sylvia's story and me is that I discovered her story way back a long time ago when I I was an undergraduate in college. I was an English major obsessed with the 1920s. I just was so entranced by the expat generation, you know, who went to Paris and, you know, lived there for many years. So we're talking about Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein. And for a little while, F. Scott Fitzgerald went there, or Ezra Pound. And so that's that's the sort of little bit of the background. Okay, so one day I am wandering around my college town as one does. And, you know, there are all these independent bookstores, many of whom sell used books. And you know how in front of books, stores, the used book bins, books being sold for like a dollar or something. So I was rummaging through one of those one day and found Sylvia Beach's own memoir in there for like a dollar. And I read the back and I think I had heard of Shakespeare and Company. I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. So she's part of this, you know, lost generation milieu that I was so interested in. So I bought it, took it home and read it and was just I just loved her book. It's a very small little book. It's a slim memoir, especially considering what an amazingly large life she had. But, you know, I that was when I learned that not only did she open Shakespeare and Company, which was really the home away from home of all these lost generation writers, but she also published the very first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses. And, you know, as a 20 year old, I just thought, wow, and filed it away under good to know. <laughs> and so when I, I'm sort of amazed that I didn't think about writing about her sooner, but in many ways, I'm glad I didn't because I think that my first two subjects, you know, first writing about a lesser known Kennedy and then Grace Kelly kind of prepared me to write about Sylvia Beach and all the famous writers that were her friends. So that's the story of me and Sylvia. I feel so serendipitous. I mean, what were the chances of you stumbling on this book? Because how many copies were ever printed and then it found its way to there? I mean, what are the chances of that? I know, right? Like it was, there's really a a certain kind of meant to be feeling about it. And the book is still in print. You can still order it. Her book, there's lovely new editions. In fact, I had to order a new edition of it. I don't know what happened to that book that I found at Berkeley all those years ago. It's gone. I think I lent it to someone. So I had to buy a new edition so that when I started doing research for this novel, I reread her book cover to cover very slowly with a pencil in hand, you know, underlining some things and things like that. So yeah, it's just really, I'm so glad, you know, people who are familiar with the current Shakespeare and Company store in Paris and also other people like me who enjoy the writing of the 1920s, almost all of them have heard of Sylvia Beach and kind of know that she owned this bookstore that they all went to, but that's usually where their, where their knowledge of her ends. You have to be like a, a Ulysses or James Joyce buff to know that she published the very first edition of Ulysses, which is really unfortunate because whether you, you've read Ulysses or, or never even intend to, her publication of that novel is such an amazing story. Yeah. And talking about serendipity, I mean, you said finding this book in Berkeley and now you're published by Berkeley. I know. I know. But you know what? There's an extra E in Berkeley, the place. And so for the first many years that I was being published by Berkeley, the publisher, I kept putting in the extra E. I mean, it sounds like a golden thread looping through your life. It seems like it was it was completely meant to be. So how was she as a writer? Because, you know, just because she championed writers and owned a bookstore doesn't mean necessarily that she could write. Was she a decent enough writer? And who published this memoir in the first place? You know, gosh, I would have to go pluck it off my shelf to see who originally published it. She's a lovely writer. She is, you know, the book was written in the 50s, looking back mostly on her years in the 
the 20s. So it has a very retrospective, I am looking back on my life kind of feel, which is wonderful. I mean, it's it's lovely. But, you know, I also read many of her letters that she wrote to Joyce and to other friends over the years. She wrote a great deal. And in fact, when she found herself in Paris at the end of the First World War, which is when my book starts in 1917, she actually was trying to do some more nonfiction type writing. And, you know, there's not a lot known about that part of her life, but she did write her whole life. And, and in fact, later she and her, her partner, Adrienne Monnier did quite a lot of translation work. And as Ezra Pound, one of their good friends, um, also did a lot of translation work in his career. He liked to say that, you know, translation is an art. People don't really, it's, it's an art equivalent to composing writing. And, and I think that felt true for Sylvia when she was doing it. Yeah. And I can understand why they give awards for best translations, because there's been a ton of books that have come out in English and I'm 10 pages in and it's a translation and I just cannot get into it. And, you know, it's sometimes the translations feel a bit clunky and you're like, I would have loved to read this in its original language. And I only speak two languages, one of which is useless in the whole world, except for South Africa, because that's Afrikaans and it's only pretty much spoken there. And I once tried to translate a poem, a very short poem from Afrikaans to English and it was shocking <laughs> how it came out. So very much an, an art form because it isn't just replacing the words. You know, you've got to go to the intent of the piece. You've got to capture the lyricism, tone, everything. Yeah. She and Adrienne published and translated and then published themselves the first French translation of T.S. Eliot's Proofrock. So impressive. So you've mentioned the, the research you did now, and that kind of ties into my next question, because on the podcast, we often get questions you know, can we fictionalize real people? Do they have to be dead when we fictionalize them? How do we go about doing that? How do we not get into trouble with that? So um, I'm assuming that, you know, the research of somebody goes hand in hand with the faithful representation of them or or not really. What, what's your advice on that? Yeah, well, so, so I'm going to preface all this by saying I am not a lawyer, so I'm not giving anybody legal advice here. My comfort level is if I'm going to, to write about a real person and assign that person's name to the character. So Sylvia Beach is a real person and this novel is about Sylvia Beach, right? I would feel more comfortable if that person is no longer with us <laughs> because there are different legal ramifications to writing about someone who is alive versus dead and even long dead and like with no progeny and you know all, all the things. And you know, I think that all writers of historical fiction, you know, truly, whether whether the real people are major characters or minor characters, we all feel a real responsibility to get it right. Now, what does getting it right mean? <laughs> I, I like to quote Hilary Mantel, you know, who wrote Wolf Hall on this. She did this incredible series of um, BBC lectures about writing historical fiction. And one of the things that she says is that, you know, readers and writers of historical fiction are, it's like, it's sort of a contract, right? That readers understand that what they're purchasing and writers understand that what they're writing is not a photograph, not a faithful, exact representation, but rather it's more like a painting with the brushstrokes left in. And it is very much an interpretation. And so, you know, I say this in my author's note, you know, so the Sylvia Beach, the Adrienne Monnier, the Ernest Hemingway, the, the James Joyce in my novel are my interpretations of those people. Another writer would handle those characters differently. And, you know, but that said, I tried to do as much research as I could and trying to get those people's voices as best I could in my mind. And they're, they're sort of points of view on some things so that that when I went in to write the dialogue and the description and everything, I was able to be faithful to their essence, <laughs> if not their absolutely precise thoughts and ideas about certain things. Yeah, you know, because I was I was thinking about all the constant drama about the crown, uh, that uh, so many of the royal family feel that they have not been represented well and they're upset about that. And you look at shows now where something like Dickinson, right, which is a reimagining of Emily Dickinson's life, but with a modern slant on it, et cetera. But I feel like when you sat down to write, Sylvia, were you thinking of her perhaps kind of not looking over your shoulder, but her maybe picking up this book and reading it and, and feeling like she would feel, okay, Kerry has done 
a decent enough job representing me? Or is that something you actually try not to do because it becomes too intimidating then to write her? I, I think I do not do that. I think I, I innately do not do it. You know, so I, I'll say, you know, something I sort of touched on earlier was that, you know, writing about a Kennedy and then writing about Grace Kelly, I, I think writing those two novels first before tackling, you know, Sylvia Beach and, and you know, these writers, I think was good for me um, because I did have these moments of paralysis before I really sat down and got into writing about um, Kick Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's younger sister and for the Kennedy. Kennedy debutante. I was like, first of all, it was my first attempt at historical fiction. And I'm sorry if you can hear my dog on the chair behind me. So, we, love, we love dogs on this podcast and that's okay. Terry's dog. Tail <laughs> wagging or what? Wait, well, he's he's a little bit of a nervous Nelly. His name is Bruce. Even oh, though, Bruce. Um, he wants me to be petting him at all times and, and sometimes will make some noise to, to ask me to do that. We, we totally respect that. He's expressing <laughs> his feelings. That's right. So I had these moments um, as I was starting to write the, the Kennedy debutante where I was just like, who am I to be writing about the Kennedys? I'm just, at the time, I was like, I feel like I'm just some housewife wife with five unpublished novels in her attic, you know, what am I doing? And so two writer friends of mine from very different parts of my writing life who never don't even know each other said the exact same thing to me within a two week period of each other. They were both like, but Carrie, it's your book, right? (laughs) Because I was all tied in knots about, you know, getting it quote unquote, right. And it's the Kennedys. and, And they were like, this is, it's your book. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) it's such excellent advice because as is granting yourself permission. And, you know, we speak on the podcast often about this kind of imposter syndrome and who am I to be doing this and who will care? And honestly, if you don't begin with giving yourself permission, no one else is going to give it to you. And so you just kind of have to seize that power. You just have to say my interpretation, this is what I'm doing with it. Yes, 100%. Amen to that. Definitely. And something, you know, with this novel, it spans almost 20 years. Right. And and for our listeners, it is quite difficult to do. So with my first novel, when it was first widely rejected, before I took out 60,000 words and started again. (laughs) Yeah. And that spanned four decades. And then publishers were like, oh, we really like the story, but you've been way too ambitious. Pick one period of time and go with that. So A story that spanned four decades became a story that spanned one year, three months. And my latest book spans two weeks. So could you give us advice, Kerry, on how you deal with that chunk of time in a way that feels authentic and organic and that keeps readers interested and turning pages, but that still captures the essence of this person without feeling like you're trying to do everything? Yeah, like where is the frame? Where are you putting the frame on your picture? That is such a good question. Um, And truly the only answer is it depends on the book and it's sometimes trial and error. So like the advice you got. So with Kennedy, I think this is like, an, I, I like to tell this story because I think it's instructive. So, you know, I was not writing that under contract or anything. It was just me and my computer and my hopes and dreams, right? Um, and and my five novels that had never gotten published. You know, they had gotten me some other things, but not, not published. So I had written an original version of the Kennedy debutante that was only the 18 month period before World War II breaks out. I just, I felt that there was a satisfying narrative arc there. So anyway, there were some other reasons why I did it that way. Long story short, I had an agent at the time who said, you have to write the full story of the romance between Kick and and Billy, which meant writing the next four years, totally changing the frame. So I, I wound up after much gnashing of teeth, wildly condensing a 450 page book about an 18 month period down to the first 120 or so pages of a new 450 page book. So that, that the original book is only parts one and two of five in the Kennedy debutante. So, and so that's just an example of the story required me to tell more of it, right? You know, with Grace Kelly, I didn't wind up having to make like such a dramatic change. I chose to kind of go back and forth in time in order to accommodate many decades you're talking about. That's a really hard thing to do. And with with Sylvia's story, there was a there was a whole bunch of shifting of frame. <laughs> I'll just say that. And there were some big cuts even at the very end. Like my editor and I just made some decisions after I had done a, a pretty hefty revision. We just decided to make a big cut at the end and 
and it was the right one. It was absolutely the right thing to make the frame what it is now that you're reading. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I like big books and I cannot lie, but many <laughs> publishers have problems with bigger books, especially for debuts. And so yeah. we, you know, often tell our listeners and, and our students, try and keep it to 80,000 words because otherwise agents get scared. They look at it and they think it's bloated. Editors as well. So how was it that you were then able to sell a book that was so much bigger? Is it because the genre, historical fiction, yeah. for more leeway? Yes, yes, yes. I would say I would say that 80,000, that's true for more contemporary adult fiction. It's closer to 100,000 for historical. Historical readers, editors, agents all just expect longer books. I mean, we have, I think, some really tremendous writers of even longer historical fiction like Kate Quinn and Stephanie Dre and these great, just phenomenal historical novels that are long. So I think that, you know, the, the genre and, and, you know, and also Hilary Mantel, I mean, we could go on and on. I think that the genre just is much more forgiving. I think because we're trying to wedge in so much historical detail and in some cases like a real life, it's just closer to a hundred thousand words, but still listen, even though we, we might quote unquote, get 20 extra thousand words, it is hard to get it there sometimes. And, and many books are longer, but it's also true for a debut lean is good. Yeah. Um, but, but there are exceptions. It's, it's really hard to. And, and also there's so much that we as writers find fascinating, especially when we're doing this kind of research and we're finding out things that we didn't know and a whole bunch of other people don't know either. And so yeah. it's tempting to be like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. I'm going to put it yeah. in here and I'm going to somehow. But again, if, you know, um, we say to our listeners, have a look at sort of Lisa's Cron, the third rail when it comes to looking at each scene and each scene in the novel has to be doing heavy lifting in, in terms of either revealing more about character that the reader didn't know or mm -hmm. move the plot forward. It can't just be something fascinating that we like if it's not doing one of those other things at the same right. time. A hundred percent. Yes. That's why when you are doing research for historical and you find that golden detail that you just know is doing all those things yeah. <laughs> um, it, and it's just like effortless to put it in there. Right. It's like so striking crazy. gold. Woohoo! Yeah. Last question, Kerry, because I know uh, you've got a ton of other interviews and we press for time. In terms of choosing your point of view, why did you decide to go with third person as opposed to first person? This is a great question. And especially because, you know, I, for these first three books, I am writing a very close third person, right? So like, why not first person? And the true core answer is because I don't feel comfortable doing that <laughs> because I think they are real people. And as I, I, I think I started saying this with the Kennedy I feel like the third person gives me that paper thin permission to kind of editorialize a little bit more than I would if I was writing in the first person, if that makes sense. 100%. And it also allows your narrative voice as the author to kind of move into the story as opposed to, because I'm sure you read tons of her letters. And then if you wrote it in first person, you'd feel like you'd have to capture her voice as opposed to allowing your voice as narrator and author to come through. Yes. I, I have to say, I, I try to keep the, my voice to a minimum, but I also recognize that it's impossible to get rid of it entirely. But again, writing in the third person means that I'm not sitting there going, oh my God, does this sound authentic to her voice? Like, I don't, I don't have to wrestle with that as much. So, you know, and, and she, these were real people. They had voices of their own. So like, does it, I just, even though it is true and I stand by, this is my interpretation of these people. And that would still be true. Even if I was writing in first person, I don't know. I still like the third person. I still like close third. Yeah. Yeah. When done well, it's absolutely phenomenal. And so for our listeners, Carrie did it phenomenally well. So <laughs> Get the Paris bookseller. And Kerry, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, Bianca, I'm so glad I was able to be here with you today. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.